choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment at first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. I'm going to step off the land now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful. Discovery, go at throttle up. Discovery, right or go at throttle up. Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time. Its voyage at an end. Hello and welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 4 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Vengeance Weapons. World War II abruptly changed the course of rocket history. Before the war started, there had been little continuity of development throughout the world. With the coming of war, rocketry suddenly flowered. Every major combatant nation had a rocket program but Germany's rocket program was greater than all the other nations combined. The German rocket program produced and deployed several rockets and missile weapons during World War II. The most significant and powerful of these were the V weapons, the V-1 and V-2. The V stood for Vergelstungwaffen, which is roughly translated vengeance weapons. The weapons were named by the propaganda minister Dr. Joseph Goebbels. The V-1, codenamed Cherry Stone, was more of a cruise missile than a rocket. The thrust was provided by a gasoline-powered pulse jet engine. It had a wingspan of 17 feet and it was 26 feet long. It was launched from a ski-style launch ramp with a steam catapult. The weight at launch was 4,800 pounds, of which 1,870 pounds was the explosive warhead. It developed a maximum thrust of 1,100 pounds. The V-1 flew a preset course until a switch cut off its engine, causing the missile to simply fall on whatever was under it. The V-1 had a top speed of 390 miles per hour. This made it vulnerable to fighter aircraft and anti-aircraft artillery. Also, the V-1 was prone to structural failure due to engine vibration. It is estimated that 25% of all launches were destroyed by structural failure. In flight, the V-1 made a distinctive sound that caused the Allies to nickname it the Buzz Bomb. This is the way it sounded. People on the ground knew they were relatively safe if the buzzing sound came and faded as the weapon passed out of range. However, if the buzzing sound stopped abruptly, it was quickly understood that the V-1 was falling and an explosion would occur nearby. The V-1 was developed at Pinamunde Airfield by the German Luftwaffe. It was designed for terror bombing of London. 
The test flights began in 1941. However, the first operational launch did not occur until June 13th of 1944. This launch was one week after D-Day and was prompted by the successful Allied landing in Europe. 29,000 V-1s were made, mainly at the gigantic slave mine called Mittelwerke near Nordenhausen. The most massive attack occurred in August of 1944 when 316 V-1s were launched from 38 catapults. However, by this time, fighter and anti-aircraft weapons with proximity fuse were gaining the upper hand. Altogether, 2,419 bombs fell on London out of over 8,000 attempts. 2,448 fell on Antwerp. An experimental piloted version of the V-1 named the V-1E was made. It was intended to be flown by a pilot on a suicide mission to hit a target. A German test pilot called Hannah Reitz flew the V-1E. She confirmed that the airframe was prone to severe vibration and that deployment would result in significant pilot losses. The V-1E was never deployed. V-1 attacks continued until the last site was overrun in March 1945. In total, the V-1 attacks caused 22,892 casualties, almost entirely civilians. Whereas the V-1 could be seen and attacked, the V-2 was effectively invisible after it had been launched. There was no warning. Londoners were not aware a V-2 had launched until it had exploded. The German military provided the funding for the V-2. During the time between World War I and II, the military was searching for a weapon which would not violate the Versailles Treaty that ended World War I. The Treaty of Versailles put limits on German aircraft but did not affect rockets. The V-2 developed under the designation A-4, was perhaps the greatest single achievement in the history of rocketry. It was only second to the atom bomb as the most significant scientific advancement of World War II. The V-2 was the result of years of effort by Werner von Braun and others in the German Society for Spaceflight during the 1920s and early 30s. By 1934, the civil enthusiast effort had come under control of the army under Captain Walter Dornberger at Kummersdorf. Wind tunnel tests were conducted on the A-4 in 1936, and in 1937 the team moved to Pinamunde with Dornberger as commanding officer and von Braum as technical director. After a series of smaller test vehicles and exhaustive static tests, the first A-4 was tested unsuccessfully in June of 1942. It toppled on its side and exploded, the result of a propellant feed system failure. The second test, conducted in August of 1942, was only considered a partial success, but the V-2 became the first missile to exceed the speed of sound. The third test, conducted on October 3, 1942, was a complete success with the rocket achieving a maximum altitude of 50 miles and a range of 118 miles. And now an eyewitness account of the first launch from T.A. Heppenheimer's book, 
Countdown. We felt the heat of the rocket on our faces as soon as the flames developed. The sound was tremendous. We didn't hear with the ears only, but with the whole body. It was as if the entire skin was an eardrum vibrating. The rocket rose very evenly. It moved as if nothing else on earth existed. It gained speed while the flame grew longer. It went up straight, then it began to tilt over, again very evenly. It went out over the Baltic, still as if no other motion existed. Then came a critical moment as the rocket powered through the speed of sound. It did not falter. It continued to fly true. Suddenly a shock. A long white streak began to form behind the missile, standing out sharply against the blue sky. An explosion? No, a vapor trail, forming naturally as its exhaust condensed with the cold upper air. Powerful winds, pervasive at high altitude, quickly seized this trail and blew it into a zigzag shape. Coming up on one minute after launch, through binoculars, the rocket, now some 20 miles away, showed a tiny reddish dot where its nose had heated through the atmospheric friction. Ground control equipment sent a cutoff signal. The flame vanished along with the vapor trail. Still, the rocket showed a dazzling bright dot at its tail as the nozzle continued to shine with white heat. Following the successful launch, Hitler, who had not been impressed with the potential rockets when he viewed the test firings of engines at Kummersdorf in 1939, suddenly became interested in the V-2. He established a military production committee within the Ministry of Armaments and War Production to manage further development of the V-2. This was both a blessing and a curse. The blessing was the additional funds for the program. The curse was the military organization placed in charge of the V-2, developed by Hitler, lacked scientific judgment and ultimately hindered the capabilities of the weapon significantly, according to von Braun. There were political consequences as well. A German SS general, Hans Kammler, tried to take over the program, but General Dornberger stopped this. However, the SS kept trying, and in February of 1944, von Braun was called to Gestapo headquarters in East Prussia, where he was extended an invitation by Heinrich Himmler to abandon the army and work for him. Von Braun rejected Himmler, and three days later he was arrested by Gestapo agents and taken to prison in Stettin. Two weeks later, the SS charged von Braun with not being interested in war rockets, but rather having space exploration as his motivation for developing the B-2. He was also accused of sympathizing with the British and that he had hatched a scheme to escape to England by airplane and share his rocketry knowledge with the enemy. All charges were dropped after General Dornberger appealed directly to Adolf Hitler, claiming the charges were false and that von Braun was not expendable from the B-2 program. Hitler agreed, and von Braun was released from prison. Now let's take a look at the V-2's technical specifications. The V-2 looked like a classic spaceship. It was slim and tall, 46 feet, with a body tapered to a point. Fins of elegant shape fitted to the tail. Its diameter was 66 inches. The fins increased the span to 12 feet. The entire rocket weighed about 28,373 pounds at launch. 
The payload, a 2,000-pound explosive device, was located in the top six feet of the rocket. It would develop a maximum thrust of 69,000 pounds and attain a speed of over 3,500 miles per hour. The instrumentation section a five, was five foot in length and was located below the warhead. The instrumentation was state-of-the-art for the time. It, it consisted of an automatic pilot, accelerometer, and radio equipment. The automatic pilot used two electric gyroscopes to stabilize the rocket's pitch, roll, and yaw motions. The gyroscopes controlled steering vanes at the base of the V-2. All this worked together to deflect the engine exhaust and steer the rocket. The second component of the instrumentation was the accelerometer. It was used to measure the velocity of the rocket. The third component, the radio equipment, had multiple uses. First, it could be used to receive commands from the ground to shut off fuel flow to the engine. Second, it could be used to measure the rocket's velocity through the Doppler effect. And third, the radio could be used to guide the rocket from the ground. The instrumentation section also carried a number of steel bottles that contained compressed nitrogen used to pressurize the fuel tanks and operate some valves. Below the instrumentation was a 20-foot section containing two fuel tanks. The first fuel tank was filled with liquid oxygen, while the second held a combination of 75% alcohol and 25% water. These were the fuels that powered the V2 engine. Below that was a 15-foot section containing the engine. The engine included a combustion chamber, fuel pipes, liquid oxygen and alcohol fuel pumps with steam-driven turbines, and the hydrogen peroxide auxiliary fuel that operated the steam turbine. And this concludes the technical specifications of the V2. V2 construction began at the Pinamunde Experimental Center. However, an Allied bombing raid of Pinamunde on August 17, 1943 made the Germans realize the futility of that location. Production relocated to an underground facility at Miedelwerk near Nordenhausen in the Harz Mountains. The site was converted from an oil depot. The bulk of the work was performed by slave laborers from concentration camps working under horrendous conditions. During peak production, about 900 V-2 missiles per month were produced at the Miedelwerk plant. It's important to remember that the V-2 was designed to be a mobile weapon. The Germans believed that fixed launch sites would be vulnerable to attack. Once completed, the rockets were transported by rail car from the factory to storage areas, where they were moved to special trailers by portable cranes. Then they were moved by truck and trailer to their launch sites. It took about 30 vehicles to launch a V-2, including transport trucks and trailers, the Müllerswagen, propellant storage trucks, command and control trucks, personnel carriers, and military support vehicles. The operation was very efficient, and a V-2 could typically be launched from four to six hours after a suitable launch site was selected. Launch was controlled from a remote location about 300 yards away from the rocket. An armored vehicle of some type was typically used as a firing room. When the rocket was ready to launch, an electric signal was sent to the start the fuel pumps. It took about three seconds for the turbines to reach full speed. When they did, the fuel flow reached its full value of 275 pounds per second, 
and the engine thrust reached 69,000 pounds. The V2 rose slowly off the launch pad and continued vertically for four seconds. Then the gyroscopic guidance system pitched the rocket to its maximum angle of 45 degrees. The angle allowed the V2 to travel its greatest distance. Seventy seconds later, fuel flow was stopped and the engine shut down. By that time, the rocket had reached a speed of five to 6,000 feet per second. The V2 would then coast until it reached its target, which usually took five minutes. The maximum target range was about 200 miles. The first deployment of a V2 was on September 6, 1944. Two V2 missiles were launched at Paris but failed to inflict any damage. The majority of V2 missiles were launched toward London and Antwerp, Belgium. Over 5,000 V2s were launched but only about 1,100 reached England. This meant the V2 had a high failure rate. Some of the problems occurred at launch, sometimes the guidance system failed, sometimes there was a structural failure during flight, and sometimes the explosive warhead failed to detonate. V-2 attacks on England did not stop until the launch sites were captured in March of 1945. Even though there was a high failure rate, the V-2 was a potent weapon. This is what General Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander of the European Theater, had to say about the V-2. It seemed likely that if the Germans had succeeded in perfecting and using these new weapons earlier than they did, our invasion of Europe would have proved exceedingly difficult, perhaps impossible. I feel sure that if they had succeeded in using these weapons over a six-month period, and particularly if they had made the Portsmouth-Southampton area one of the principal targets, Operation Overlord may have been written off. End quote. I should mention that a number of follow-up versions of the V-2 were envisioned by the Von Braun team. These involved multi-stage rockets that would have extended the range of the missile to reach U.S. soil and manned versions capable of carrying men into space. Perhaps General Dornberger summed up the V-2 program best in his speech about the first successful launch. He said, We are the first to have given a rocket a speed of 3,300 miles per hour. We have thus proved that it is quite possible to build piloted missiles or aircraft to fly at supersonic speeds. We did it with automatic control. Our rocket today reached a height of nearly 60 miles. We have invaded space with our rocket. We have proved rocket propulsion practical for space travel. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.